Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. The collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991 appeared to usher in a remarkable new era of peace and cooperation with the West. This, we're told, was the end of history. Now the entire world would embrace enlightenment values and liberal democracy. Reality has proved very reality has proved very different. Here with us to discuss the dramatic aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Putin's Russia is Peter Conradi. Conradi is the foreign editor of the Sunday Times. During his seven years as a foreign correspondent in Moscow, he witnessed the USSR's collapse firsthand. His previous books include Hitler's Piano Player and the international bestseller The King's Speech, co-authored with Mark Logue, which told the real-life story behind the Oscar-winning film. He's also the author of a newly released book, Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War, which the New York Times is calling a smart, balanced analysis of the internal developments that have shaped Russia's course since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, Peter Conradi, welcome to the program. It's, it's great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Um, just as a just as an intro, why did you why did you decide to write this book? I, I wrote this book because, as, as as you said, I used to be a correspondent in uh, based in Moscow, covering the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was there from 1988 until 1995. Then I I, I moved on. Um, I sort of lost direct contact with Russia. I came back to London eventually, became the, the foreign editor of the Sunday Times, the British Sunday Times. And in that job, I have been sort of overseeing our coverage of the events that um, sort of began with um, Russia's seizure of, of Crimea in um, 2014. And I was, I was looking at those events, um, the sort of the, the uprising a few months earlier in the Maidan in, in Kiev, the square in the center of the Ukrainian capital, the seizure of Crimea, the resulting war in eastern Ukraine. We, we like other media, were obviously covering it quite extensively. And the impression that I had, a lot of people thought that this was something that it was sort of suddenly coming out of the blue. I think for a lot of people in Britain, probably a lot of people in America too, they kind of felt that you know, Russia had been sort of sorted years ago. It wasn't really a, a problem on their radar anymore. And what I wanted to do was essentially to, you know, to set the record straight to say, actually, over the past 25 years, we haven't sorted out Russia, we haven't sorted out our relationship with Russia, and that all these unresolved problems are really coming home to to roost, as it were, um, through the annexation of of, of Crimea and and the the resulting standoff between Washington and, and Moscow. Uh, 1991 um, was supposed to be what was called the end of history. The Soviet Union fell. You actually begin the book um, by talking about uh, how Boris Yeltsin signed a treaty um, that f- formally abolished the USSR um, at Belizeva uh, National Park. Um, what was the Bush administration, the then Bush administration, uh, George H.W. Bush, what was their policy at the downfall of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991, at the end of that year? I think, I th- I think it's very important to remember, uh, as Jack Matlock, who was uh, the, the American ambassador to, to the USSR until August 1991, as he pointed out, there were essentially three things that were going on in the late 1980s and early 90s, as far as the, sort of as far as Moscow was concerned. One of them was, was, was the end of the Cold War. Another was the end of communism. And the third was the breakup of the Soviet Union. 
and that these three things, obviously very, very linked to each other, were also independent of each other to some extent. So as far as America was concerned, the end of the Cold War was obviously a good thing. This 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 began this this began um, under under Gorbachev um, and sort of negotiating with Bush. Um, you know the, the broader kind of rapprochement, arms con- more arms control deals, uh, kind of a, an easing of tensions and so on. That, that was undoubtedly a good thing. The second thing that was going on was the end of communism. Again, from a an American, a British, Western point of view, and indeed from the point of view of, of, of the people that lived in the Soviet Union, that was obviously a good thing as well. Uh, the third thing, though, was the, the end of Soviet Union, or rather the breakup of the Soviet Union into its constituent parts. Now, this was, you know, this, 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 was, this was different, because as far as the West was concerned, Yes, they've been talking. There's been all this rhetoric about the, the the evil empire and captive nations and so on. But by by 1991, you know, the real captive nations—Poland, Hungary, uh, what became the Czech Republic and Slovakia and so on—they'd already been liberated. The Berlin Wall had come down. So that that sort of outer edge of the Soviet empire had been had won liberation. What you were left with was the Soviet Union itself, which was to some extent an empire, to some extent a multinational country. And bits, the parts, the individual parts of it were very, very closely entwined with one another. And I think that the Bush administration realized quite rightly that the breakup of the Soviet Union itself would be a very complex phenomenon. Uh, it would be very, very destabilizing, potentially, uh, because they didn't believe that it could happen peacefully. And most important, I think, was the concern about what it meant for the massive Soviet nuclear arsenal, because the, 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 the nuclear weapons were located in four of the, of the 15 republics that made, up in the Soviet, that made up the Soviet Union. They were in Russia itself, they were in Ukraine, they were in Belarus, and they were in Kazakhstan. And the real concern, the main concern, I think, initially, as far as America was concerned, as far as the Bush administration was concerned, was that... These, there shouldn't be a proliferation of these weapons, that the United States shouldn't face four nuclear powers. And for that reason, there was no great enthusiasm for the country to break up. Well, how did they match that with, you know, the, the rhetoric about the evil empire and, you know, the, 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 um, the end of the Soviet Union, defeat, you know, defeating that evil empire? How, how, did, you know, how did that match up on the domestic front and internationally? internationally as well for a lot of these countries that wanted self-determination? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer is with, with difficulty. Um, you know, as, as I said, you can make, a, there is a real distinction between the, the, the true empire, i.e. The, 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 the outer ring of countries, um, the Hungary, Poland, and so on. You know, this, you know they, they were undoubtedly, they were undoubtedly empire, and I think there was, there was no doubt that they, that they should be liberated. Within the Soviet Union itself, um, there was always a special status which was enjoyed by the, the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, because America, along with Britain, and along with another a number of other countries, never formally accepted their annexation by the Soviet Union, which happened during the, during the Second World War as a result of the, the deal between uh, the Nazis and, uh, and Stalin. The, sort of the so-called secret protocols to the Molotov-Ribbentrop 
Ribbentrop Pact. So there was, they were always in a sort of a, a special category. Um, it became a little bit more complicated when it, it came to constituent republics of the Soviet Union, which themselves <clears throat> to me, had been part of the Russian Empire before that. You know, was Kazakhstan, for example, a captive nation? Um, you know, the, Kazakhstan had really never been an independent nation. Um, there wasn't a particular enthusiasm for independence there. And, you know, the same was true of, of several of the other republics. In, in some of them, on contrast, uh, there were kind of independence movements. Uh, there was a particularly strong independence movement in, in Ukraine, which was to prove decisive. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was complicated. I mean, this really came to a head in, although the, the apparent contradictions in the American position came to a head at the start of August 1991, when uh, George Bush Sr. came to Moscow to meet Gorbachev, and then he insisted on going down to Kiev to give a speech to um, the Ukrainian parliament. Um, Gorbachev didn't want him to go down there because he thought that he, he, Bush was going to foment the independence movement. But on the contrary, Bush made um, quite significant speech in which he essentially lectured the Ukrainians. Um, he said to them, I'm to quote from the speech, he said, freedom is not the same as independence. Americans will not support those who seek independence in order to replace a far-off tyranny with a local despotism. They will not aid those who promote a suicidal nationalism based on ethnic hatred. So this was a real sort of warning to the Ukrainians not to push too hard for, for independence. This went down quite badly um, in nationalist circles in Ukraine and also earned Bush a lot of criticism at home. Uh, William Sapphire, the conservative commentator, wrote a a very tough column in which he, he described the speech as being the chicken Kiev speech, uh, <laughs> which you know, which stuck and really stung. A, a key figures in this kind of uh, push-pull between uh, dismantling of the Soviet empire and this rise in nationalism were uh, Boris Yeltsin and Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev wanting to keep the, the Soviet premier, wanting to keep the Soviet Union together. Um, through some reforms, and Boris Yeltsin, uh, the president of the, uh, the Russian Federation, uh, wanting to um, make Russia independent. Uh, these two figures were rivals. How did the Bush administration um, uh, deal with these uh, two these two leaders? Yeah, I mean that 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 was that was the problem for not just for the Bush administration, but for for all foreign governments to, to know precisely what was what was going on and who they should be dealing with. Because in, in, in the late 1980s, it was Gorbachev very much running things, and it was very clear that he was, he was the person to deal with. Yeltsin was a, you know, a, a long-time rival of Gorbachev. They had a lot of personal issues between them, dating back you know, several years. Um, so the American response was initially to deal with Gorbachev and not to have much to do with Yeltsin. This was particularly, uh, this, 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 this policy was strengthened after a fairly disastrous uh, trip that Yeltsin, who was then the leader of the Russian Federation uh, within the Soviet Union, he had a trip that he made to Washington, um, where he behaved in a quite eccentric way, um, 
sort of tried to throw his weight around in a way that didn't go down very well with his American hosts. So this sort of further confirmed the idea that America should do business with Gorbachev. Now, in the course of 1991, there was, uh, which was the last year of the Soviet Union, there was a, a coup in, in August 1991 where the, the hardliners tried to topple Gorbachev and it ended up uh, with them being defeated and uh, precipitating the decline of the Soviet Union. As all this was going on and Yeltsin was growing in power and Gorbachev was falling in power, uh, you know, the administration gradually had to come to terms with the fact that Yeltsin was actually the coming man. He was on the up while Gorbachev was on the down. And also that ideologically, Yeltsin appeared to be closer to the West than what we wanted. Uh, Gorbachev was still trying to cling on to a form of communism, however watered down, whereas Yeltsin was appearing to you know, promise to, to reform the communist system completely, to, um, you know, to, to introduce a market economy, uh, far more radical kind of economic reforms than, than Gorbachev would have done. Um, so therefore, gradually, we saw this realization that Yeltsin was, was the coming man. You write that since the days of Peter the Great, uh, Russia had been engaged in a struggle between uh, Zabadniki, if I'm pronouncing that right, who held that the country, Almost, yeah. <laughs> who that the country must follow a Western model for development, and the Slavophiles, who stressed that the unique nature of Orthodox Russia, um, who, who came, who came to dominate post-Soviet Russia? Well, I mean, this was, was absolutely the, the, the victory of the, of the Zapadniki um, under, under Boris Yeltsin because he, uh, he, as I say, he wanted to move the economy. He wanted to, he wanted to basically westernize, westernize Russia. He wanted to open up Russia to the West, to Western influences, to Western economic influences, to Western political influences. Um, so we saw a, a rush of um, Western advisors who, who came over there um, to Russia to, to, to sort of to help with this transition. I mean, one of the most prominent figures among them was the economist Jeffrey Sachs, who'd already worked wonders with the Polish economy and thought, um, as it turned out wrongly, that he was going to work equal wonders in, in reforming the Russian economy. So this, this was very much the... Uh, as I said, the triumph of the Zapadniki. I mean, as far as ordinary people were concerned as well, there was this, this real feeling, and I, and I sensed it when I, I lived and worked there, that, you know, everything Western was great, everything Russian was, 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 was rubbish, was useless. So therefore, um, no one wanted to eat Russian food anymore. They wanted to eat American food or French food or Italian food, probably not British food. They weren't that desperate. Um, but, uh, you know, they, there was this real naivety, I think, that the, that the West was everything. I mean, I remember when the, the first, in 1990, uh, when the first branch of McDonald's or the first McDonald's restaurant opened in Pushkin Square in the, in the middle of uh, Moscow, this was, you know, absolute incredible as far as the Russians were concerned. This was the future. And the whole 1990s were, saw the kind of the, the, the triumph of this sort of attempt to pull, push Russia towards the West, which then began to, to falter in uh, the late 1990s amid all sorts of economic problems, which then sort of paved the way for the reaction and the sort of the resurgence, I suppose, of the, of the Slavophiles uh, that we've, we've seen since. 
during that economic transition from, uh, what was it like that from the command economy to the free market economy? What sort of reforms took place and how, um, you know, how did the, how did the Russian people attempt to adopt those reforms? I, I think it's, it's difficult for anyone who's not lived in, uh, you know, in a country like the Soviet, country like the Soviet Union, there's probably no country like the Soviet Union, but it's difficult for someone who hasn't lived in that country um, and having gone there from a Western country to, to understand the enormity of the changes that, that went underway. I mean, I, I as a Briton had lived in, in, in uh, grown up in, in, in Britain, had gone through the, the kind of the Thatcherite reforms of the, of the 1980s. And, uh, you know, that the Thatcher period was notable for the, the, the privatizations that went on of sort of state utilities and so on. Now, but, you know, what happened in Britain compared to what happened in Russia, it was, it was a completely, completely different scale because in Russia, it was not just a matter of the fact that the, the whole, almost the entire economy was in public ownership. So not only did you have to transfer from public ownership into private ownership, the whole swathe of, 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 of Russian industry, of Russian commerce, of every aspect of economic activity, but you also needed to move from sort of a so-called command economy where the state decides the prices of everything, where the state decides how much of every product is going to be produced, you know, how many spoons, how many forks, how many shoes, how many cars, all this kind of thing, all taken on a, on a you know, decisions taken at a central level. You know, to move from that to a, a genuine market system, such as we have in the, in the West, where you know the prices of, of things are largely dictated by the forces of supply and demand, and so on. So you had during the, the first part of the 1990s these massive reforms, both to, to change the ownership of the economy and to change the way that it worked, which was a hugely complicated process. Um, it, the fact that it took place at the same time as the breakup of the Soviet Union, which meant the sort of disruption of all sorts of traditional economic ties, made it a lot more complicated. The fact that um, it happened, that the economy was in such a poor shape to start with, made it even more complicated. And it inevitably created huge numbers of losers and a relatively small number of winners who did, but who did very, very well. So you got the emergence of what we now call, I suppose, the oligarch class, who were a mixture of uh, either people who worked, who had who had powerful positions in state enterprises, who effectively kind of privatized the enterprises and uh, managed to line their own pockets in the process, or alternatively, you've got a lot of sort of enterprising young kids often who um, started buying and selling things and sort of began to build up huge commercial empires, ultimately, in the much of a few years. So you've got all those people, or the relatively small number of people who, who got very, very rich very, very quickly, and you've got a large section of the population who were impoverished because they were perhaps living on fixed incomes, or they were just working for state enterprises that didn't have any money, uh, and, you know, they, they, they suffered enormously during the 1990s. It was a very, very turbulent time. You bring up the economist Jeffrey Sachs. Um, he said that the amount required to save the Soviet Union at this time was about $30 billion per year. Um, however, 
the Bush administration going through its own recession, uh, the, the America going through its own recession during the Bush administration, was reticent to commit that amount of, or even close to that amount of, amount of dollars, uh, to save uh, the Russian economy. Um, you write that the Bush administration was spurred into, in a, into action by an unlikely person, former President Richard Nixon, um, who raised the possibility of um, an instance of who lost Russia. Um, what did Nixon do, and how did the Bush administration respond? Yeah, I mean, this, this, this really was a, an, an extraordinary intervention. There was, this was in, in the um, early part of February, March 1992, so in, 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 uh, just as Bush was uh, preparing for his, his ultimately unsuccessful re-election battle. And uh, Nixon, who was then age 79, circulated a secret uh, memo. I mean, one calls it secret. He actually circulated to, to 50 close friends and um, top foreign policy experts. Um, so with the obvious intention that it was going to, it was going to come out, uh, Washington being a very, leaky, a very leaky town. Anyway, he circulated this memo saying essentially that America and the West in general, were missing a great opportunity to transform Russia and its neighbors into democracies by not providing enough aid. So this, this memo um, was duly written up um, by Thomas Friedman, the diplomatic correspondent of the, of the New York Times. It appeared uh, on March the 10th, 1992, on, on Super Tuesday. And basically, Nixon laid into the Bush administration, he was saying, I'm um, to quote from his memo, the stakes are high and we're playing it as if it were a penny anti-game. He talked about a pathetically inadequate response to the crisis in the former Soviet Union, um, was, was basically really critical of, of, of Bush for not being prepared to put uh, a lot of money into Russia. And as he put it there, the, the hot button issue in the 1950s was who lost Russia. If Yeltsin goes down, the question again. He said, and he said, the hot button issue in the 1950s was who lost China. If Yeltsin goes down, the question who lost Russia will be an infinitely more devastating issue in the 1990s. So it's obviously where I took the title for my book from. And, you know, this intervention was um, extraordinary. Um, it was, uh, you know, Bush felt that he needed to respond to it. Uh, more significantly, Bill Clinton uh, also felt that he needed to respond to it. He was a little faster off you know, on, on, on his feet, uh, promising a little bit more money than Bush was prepared to offer. Um, but ultimately, I mean, the, the significant thing is that ultimately, when Clinton did come to power, uh, the amount of money that was offered was nothing like the money that uh, Nixon felt should have been offered and, and would have been necessary in his mind to, um, you know, to save Russia. This, um, the Bush administration in 1992 um, had a summit with uh, Russia in Washington in June of that, in June of that year. What, what was accomplished during that summit? I mean, it was, this was, this was, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a, it was quite a dramatic summit because Boris, this was Boris Yeltsin's uh, first visit to America president because he'd been uh, he'd, he'd become president uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union or become leader of an independent Russia 
with a breakup of the Soviet Union at the beginning of that year. Um, you know, he was greeted with great chants of Boris, Boris from uh, people in Congress. Um, he made some, you know, concessions on, or some, made some promises on, on helping to find American prisoners of war. He might still be alive in Russia. He, he talks about how he was uh, going to destroy some of Russia's SS-18 nuclear missiles, and it was it was basically uh, it was basically an appeal for aid. Uh, he was saying, you know, I'm doing all these things uh, in return. I need some I need some money from you, and you know, so, as I said, some money was offered by Bush, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't a lot of money, and it didn't it wasn't really enough to make a difference. Uh, you had mentioned the Clinton administration and, um, you know, not giving as much as what Nixon called for uh, in 1992. Um, however, Nixon did uh, advise the Clinton administration. Um, he had a six-hour conversation with then the future ambassador, Nicholas Burns, who was, who was uh, then the uh, Soviet affairs advisor in the, in the Clinton White House. Uh, Nixon predicted that uh, a strong man would emerge in Russia uh, and would put put to rest any hopes of a, a strong institutional democracy if if uh, if proper uh, reforms didn't take place if the Clinton the Clinton administration or any success administration didn't have more of a hands-on policy with the, with the Soviet Union um, on a political level um, what was the what was the Clinton administration's policy on Russia well, I mean, the Clinton administration's policy on Russia was essentially to put all their money, as it were, on Boris Yeltsin. As far as as far as the Clinton administration was concerned, Yeltsin was the man who was going to save Russia, or perhaps better, he was the man who was going to stop Russia turning back into the Soviet Union, to stop Russia turning back, uh, you know, to, to, to stop the reversal of positive things that had happened during the late 80s and the early 90s. So, you know, although not prepared to um, give Yeltsin anything like the money that he wanted, uh, the Clinton administration gave him a lot of, of sort of diplomatic support, a lot of public support. There were huge numbers of meetings between Bill Clinton and uh, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, on a personal level, they got on, they seem to have gone on very, very well Indeed, I mean the, the sort of the, the meetings seem to seem to follow a rather familiar pattern. That in in the sort of the public part of the meetings, Yeltsin would, would kind of harangue Clinton, and he he claim that America wasn't doing enough financially, or that America wasn't treating Russia properly, or this or that or whatever. And then when they get behind closed doors, um, he would just kind of essentially essentially roll over and uh, you know do what the what what America wanted, um, but. You know, the, 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 the policy was that everything was put on, on Yeltsin, and this was, in retrospect, quite a dangerous policy because Yeltsin certainly, I think, had an aim of, of transforming Russia. I think his, his, his heart was in the right place, certainly. But in order to get there, he was prepared to do a lot of things which don't particularly appear particularly democratic, one could say. I mean, he was involved in a, uh, a bitter battle with the Russian parliament, um, which the Russian parliament was sort of largely, still largely composed of, of throwbacks to the, the communist system, who were very wary about 
reform, uh, about the pace of reform and so on. It would try to block a lot of what he's trying to do. And this turned into a, into a pitched constitutional battle, which ended with tanks on the streets of Moscow, um, you know, with their guns trained on the parliament building, and you know they fired at the parliament building and killed a lot of people. Um, America gave him uh, its or Clinton gave gave Yeltsin his full support for that, and I think equally controversially in 1996 when Yeltsin was standing for re-election, uh, his ratings were extraordinarily low. America again was was desperate that he should be re-elected. There was a great fear that uh, Gennady Zyuganov, the communist candidate, would come to power and that again would drag Russia back. And so, even though the the election was, I think, fairly dubious, most people would agree, America again was was very happy to welcome the result of it. So it was it was very much America. Sorry. So so very much Russia and Yeltsin became synonymous in in, in the eyes of the Clinton administration. Moving over to to foreign policy, uh, specifically Russians, mm-hmm. Russia's foreign policy during this period period of time, um, the end of the Soviet Union was supposed to be the end of history um, for many you know for many experts. Um, yet history and geopolitics seems to always return. Uh, you write that a Russian officials coined a term um, uh, based on how they how they saw their special role in foreign policy in this area called uh, near abroad, which in, which in Russian uh, is called Bliznai Zarubizhai. Uh, could you explain? Yeah, it, it, the, the, as, far as, as, far as, the, as far as Russia was concerned, um, the, and I think as far as Russians as a whole are concerned, the countries that made up the Soviet Union were not really foreign in the sense that that other countries were foreign. So I think, you know, they were prepared to accept that, that that Poland and Hungary and so on, this sort of outer ring of the empire, was now were now proper foreign countries with their own with their own rights and their own you know interests and so on, in the same way that maybe France or Germany or Britain were. But when it came to um, Ukraine, when it came to Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and so on, the former countries of the, of, of the countries of the former Soviet Union, there was this reluctance by Russia to accept that these were truly sovereign countries that had a right to control their own destiny. And this was also intensified by the fact that there were a very large number of ethnic Russians, probably about 25 million, who were living in these countries when they became independent. Because as long as the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, the the, the boundaries between these countries were relatively unimportant. They were like kind of administrative divisions within within a single country. And for, the, for that reason, uh, people had sort of moved backwards and forwards, and the, 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 those internal borders had been drawn often deliberately um, over the years, particularly by Stalin, for, for sort of purposes to sort of divide group ethnic groups from one another and so on. So therefore, essentially, these countries became independent uh, at the end of 1991, and although Yeltsin had, had been part of the, the the process of the breakup of the Soviet Union, and had obviously accepted them as independent states by name, the, the behaviour increasingly during the 1990s was to was to challenge these countries' rights to decide their own destiny, 
Um, the very fact, as I said, that there were a number of Russian, ethnic Russians living there gave Russia some kind of leverage over these countries. I mean, for example, there was a, there's a very substantial Russian population in the north of Kazakhstan, which is effectively kind of southern Siberia. And there was this kind of always this subtext running during the 1990s, the sort of relations between Russia and Kazakhstan, that if the, if the Kazakhs didn't um, kind of behave themselves, as it were, from a Russian point of view, the Russians could perhaps incite um, some kind of unrest among the, among the Russian, ethnic Russian population of the north of Kazakhstan, perhaps come to their rescue in some form or another. And I mean, this certainly, this certainly happened in, um, this is sort of jump forward a little bit, but it certainly happened in, in, in Georgia, in parts of Georgia, a place called uh, South Ossetia, which is a kind of a republic, uh, or an autonomous republic, a sort of subdivision of Georgia, which has a large um, population, which is um, sort of sympathetic, ethnic, traditionally sympathetic towards Russia. Uh, it was to happen later in sort of dramatic effect in um, Crimea, when uh, Russia was to justify its intervention there, partly uh, with reference to the largely ethnic Russian population of Crimea, and, and so on. So it was it's kind of a, a, a powerful instrument that could be used by Russia to intimidate its neighbors and to sort of say to them, yes, yes, you are nominally independent, but your independence is a, is a, is a, is a kind of a qualified independence and you are very much firmly within our Russian sphere of influence. Uh, moving on to uh, Yeltsin's, uh, the end of the Yeltsin, Yeltsin era and Yeltsin's successor, uh, in 1999, Yeltsin announced that he'd be choosing an obscure leader of its security services for, for his fifth uh, prime minister, uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Uh, he was relatively unknown and enjoyed, enjoyed just a 3% approval rating. Uh, can you explain Putin's rise and his rising popularity? Um, you talk particularly about the role in che his role in the Chechnya military incursion and some of his economic policies. Yeah, it was. It really, it really was an extraordinary rise because, as you said, he was the he was the fifth prime minister. Yeltsin had been sort of getting through prime ministers quite quickly because in the in the in the Russian system, the prime minister is sort of there. His appointment is fully in the gift of. President, it's a little, a little bit like in the in the French system, I suppose, nominally. Um, and the, but the prime minister is also very much the scapegoat. If, if if good things happen, then it's the president who gets credit. If bad things happen, then it's the prime minister who gets blamed. Putin arrived on the scene. Uh, he'd been kind of talent spotted uh, by Yeltsin sometime sometime earlier. Um, I think Yeltsin had heard about him. He, he appointed him. And yeah, you're right. He was. He had such a low approval rating, I think, basically because no one, no one knew who he was. He was a very, very obscure figure. Uh, people have sort of described him as being the man who rose without trace. And his fortunes changed very dramatically during the course of um, his period as, as, as prime minister. Because, <clears throat> I mean, one of, one of the key things was that there was a series of uh, apartment bombings in um, September of that year. In, in, in Moscow and various other provincial cities. And in the course of, of, of less than two months, 307 people were killed, more than 1,700 people were injured. These were very murky. These were blamed by the authorities on, um, basically on Chechen terrorists. 
there were a lot of, of, of uh, people that questioned whether that actually was the case or or whether it was it was sort of you know dirty tricks on on carried out by the domestic intelligence service. So we had this going on, um, and which led to uh, huge military reprisals against Chechnya. Um, there'd been a sort of an earlier war in Chechnya, which has ended in a kind of stalemate. Um, this was then reignited by Putin. Uh, quite a dramatic loss of life, but it, again, it went down very well with the um, large section of the Russian population who, who saw this as a sort of fair retribution for the for the for the bombings, and but also simultaneously. Putin was, was, was looking after more mundane stuff, like, for example, ensuring that people's pensions were, were paid on time. It had been a huge problem uh, as the economy had collapsed. The, the, the Russian state had a lot of pensioners that it had to pay, and often they would just not get paid for months on end. And uh, Putin just made sure, you know, proved himself to be quite an efficient administrator, made sure that these pensions actually got paid. And, and that was, a, you know, a huge factor in, um, you know, not a very exciting factor, but a very important factor, I think, in, in his his rise. So, but the thing that clinched it, essentially, was that suddenly, uh, I mean, Boris Yeltsin's term had not been due to run out until the June of 2000, but in a, in a very unexpected move in his um, traditional New Year's Eve speech, he suddenly announced that he was going to step down immediately, he was going to uh, install Putin as sort of acting president. The elections were going to be brought forward until uh, to, to March, so brought forward by three months, which gave Putin the enormous advantage of fighting the election from within the Kremlin. And you know he was already riding on a, on a big wave of popularity, and that just you know the very fact of being in the Kremlin, of sort of controlling the levers of power having a largely sycophantic media on his side, meant that he swept to a very easy victory uh, in the presidential election three months later. You mentioned earlier about this um, embrace of the West and kind of eschewing all things Russian, but this seems to change. It's sort of a cultural phenomenon. With the rise of Putin, you also seem to see the rise of uh, the Slavophiles. And uh, how did these... How did this attitude towards, you know, embracing Westernism on the one hand and then all of a sudden embracing um, Slavism on the other end, how did that, how does this change, how does this, these cultural attitudes rapidly, seem, seemingly rapidly change overnight? Well, no, in fact, it, it, it didn't happen rapidly overnight. It was quite a, you know, it was quite a slow process. Uh, it did take a, you know, an a number of years to happen. I think one can break it down into, into various stages. I would say that certainly by the time Putin came to power, uh, a lot of the enthusiasm for the West had, had, had waned. I think partly because the expectations had been so over the top. There was such an expectation that all we've got to do is um, get rid of communism and we're all going to be as wealthy as Americans. Um, you know, that clearly, that clearly hadn't happened. Um, the, you know, the the economic turmoil of, of the 1990s, the sort of the pain associated with the move to a sort of a market system, um, the, the communist opposition blamed this on on the West. So that, that that put a lot of people off the West. There were other things, for example, like the NATO intervention 
against Serbia, the bombing of the bombing of Serbia um, in connection with the sort of Kosovo crisis at the end of the 1990s, also went down very very badly in Russia because the Serbs were the, the traditional allies of Russians, and there was this sort of real feeling of, 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 of kinship. So that already things were beginning to turn even before Putin arrived, and it, was, it certainly wasn't clear when Putin arrived that that he was going to turn the country in a different direction. I mean, I think when he first came to office, he, he didn't really know what he was going to do. Um, there, was a, there was a kind of a transition period for the first few years where he kept on his um, chief of staff, uh, a guy called Voloshin, who I had the pleasure of meeting as was researching for the book. Um, he was um, very much open to cooperation with the West, he had quite a close relationship with, with Tony Blair, the then British Prime Minister, um, with Silvio Berlusconi, even more so the Italian leader, and, and, and also um, with George W. Bush. They had a sort of a famous meeting, or rather famous meeting, they had their first meeting at a summit in, in, in Slovenia in the summer of, of, of 2001, when uh, Bush was asked by one of the members of the press what kind of impression he had of Putin, and he, he replied, words that he was really going to regret later. I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to get a sense of his soul. And, you know, for the first few years, um, things did seem to go well. I mean, later that year, obviously, tragically, we had 9-11. Uh, Putin was one of, was the first foreign leader to, to, to get in contact or attempt to get in contact with, with Bush to to commiserate um, and also to to offer help um, America in order to pursue its military operations in, in Afghanistan uh, really needed access to sort of military facilities in the Central Asian states, uh, which were still you know under um, Putin's influence. Uh, Putin sort of managed to arrange for that to happen. And there, there was a sense in which I think in those in those in the early 2000s that um, Russia was, um, you know, continuing on a westward path. But I think what happened in the course of, of, of the rest of that decade um, was things began to turn sour for various reasons. Uh, I mean, the Russians weren't weren't very happy about, to put it mildly, about American intervention in Iraq. Um, they also became paranoid about uh, the so-called color revolutions, that the sort of kind of popular uprisings that um, started in Georgia in 2003, then continued in Ukraine in 2004, and then in, in, in followed in, in the Central Asian Republic of Kyrgyzstan. In, uh, in sort of Russia's eyes, these were fermented by the West, and um, Putin thought that ultimately a similar revolution would be fermented against him. He sort of saw it as a, you know, a completely paranoid way, saw it as an attempt to topple him. Um, Russia also, in the course of the decade, was becoming much, much wealthier, uh, largely thanks to a huge surge in the oil price, um, which completely transformed Russia's economic fortunes. It went from being a, a sort of a supplicant country, which had been dependent on, on Western handouts, to um, you know, a very wealthy country, um, and this led to Putin uh, beginning to assert himself 
because he didn't he didn't need Western financial. He was no longer dependent on Western financial aid. And so this process continued during the 2000s. We had uh, Russia playing a very assertive role in a, in a, a, a small but but very deadly war in in Georgia in 2008. But you know, to jump forward, the real move, I suppose, uh, away from pro-Western attitudes to the sort of the Slavophile attitude came really only after Putin's re-election uh, as president in, in 2012, which was accompanied by all sorts of mass protests because people, a lot of uh, people, certainly liberal-minded people in Russia, weren't happy to see Putin back again. And he essentially, I think at that point, decided on taking Russia in a different direction. He'd kind of given up on the West. Uh, he appears to have, have been convinced that Hillary Clinton was, was personally trying to incite the demonstrators against him. He didn't have any evidence for it. Um, and so he then started to develop a, a, a new Russia. This is a sort of a, you know, harking back almost to the Russia of the Tsars, um, based on greater emphasis on, on the Russian Orthodox Church, this sort of idea of, of Russia as being a kind of the third Rome on um, traditional social values. Uh, he became increasingly anti-gay, uh, which was curious. It wasn't really something that had sort of featured in Russian politics before that. Um, and that, that sort of completed, I think, this kind of Russia's transition to... Uh, a country that sort of was trying to portray itself as a, as a sort of a center of an alternative kind of ideology to the West. So much as in, in, in the Cold War, we had Russia as the, or the Soviet Union as being the center of a communist ideology as a, a rival to uh, the capitalist ideology of the West. Now, Putin was trying to portray Russia as being the center of a kind of a traditional conservative orthodox ideology. You had mentioned uh, President George W. Bush's comments that he later came to regret uh, about getting a sense of Putin's soul. Um, what, what do you, can you give us a sense, uh, based on your research and writing, um, what, what, dri what, is, what, is, uh, what drives Putin? Uh, what, what is his worldview? And I guess, I guess the larger question is, what is if you get to the deep roots of the man, what is Putinism? I think, I mean, you could, uh, I think to, to, to coin a phrase, I think you could, uh, you could summarize Putin's policy as basically having been making Russia great again. Um, you know, one wonders where Donald Trump got his, uh, got his slogan from. I mean, this was, <laughs> you know, this, 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 this really underlined everything that uh, the, 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 the philosophy, Putin's philosophy I think was that if you look at the sort of the Putin view of, of Russian history since the fall of the Soviet Union, was that Russia had been uh, bossed around by the West during the 1990s. It had been, to some extent, cheated by the West. It had allowed itself to be laid low. It had given up on its uh, traditional allies. Um, in, in, in the Middle East, uh, countries like Syria, for example, Iraq, and so on. It had watched the, the West trample over them. It had, it had lost a huge chunk of its territory. Uh, there is the famous quote uh, attributed to uh, that Putin once claimed that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the, of, of the 20th century. So 
from sort of the Putin view of things would be that, that, that this this period of uh, the 1990s was a kind of a time of troubles for Russia in which it had been put upon by the West, and now this was this was time to rebuild. This was a time to uh, rebuild Russia as a as a great power, to to get rid of the political chaos at at home. You know, the, the 1990s in Russia are a little bit like the 1920s in, in, in Weimar Germany of, of, of kind of permanent political instability. Putin wanted to uh, reassert kind of political control, bring political stability, wanted to bring economic stability as well. And, you know, as, as, as part of all of this, he obviously wanted to cement his own position uh, within the country at that at the top of the country. So, you know, it, it, the, the kind of the, the, the conversion of Russia into a, a kind of an authoritarian I mean, still ostensibly democratic, but but essentially authoritarian country with Putin at the top of it uh, was essentially what you know, that that's that's Putinism really. Um, you mentioned after the election in 2012, um, you know, as well as his um, interventions in the Ukraine and Syria, we see Putin's Russia more aggressive, um, more aggressive than ever. But do you believe that we we've entered a new Cold War, especially? You know, especially, I mean, given Russia's capability versus the United States, is there, is there parity there like there was during the uh, Soviet era? In this, you know, this, this, this is a, this is a kind of, uh, this is a kind of a Cold War. I mean, the, the, the subtitle of my book is How the World Entered a New Cold War. Um, it's, but I think the, the, the point one should make is, is it's a new Cold War. It's not a rerun of the old Cold War. So it's it's got a lot of it's got similarities and it's got differences. Um, I think the, the the similarities are that we have two uh, two powerful countries uh, which are clearly in have, have slipped into an antagonistic relationship towards towards one another, um, where they they I think certainly as far as the Middle East is concerned, as other parts of the world are also concerned. It, they sort of see things as a as a, a zero sum game, i.e., if, if if Russia gains something, then by definition America is is, is losing by an equal amount. So I mean, those are the, those are the those are the similarities. I mean, the differences are that <clears throat> there is because there is really, despite Putin's attempts to create a kind of a, an ideology. The Putinist ideology, the Eurasian ideology, or whatever it is uh, one wants to call it, is nothing like communism in terms of its in terms of its global in terms of its global appeal. So that the, the sense in which the whole world is divided into two ideological camps that's no longer that's no longer the case. Um, yes, Russia still has a, a huge amount of uh, nuclear weaponry. Um, you know, in the same way that it did during the Cold War, so there's a similarity there. The Russian military um, has been there's been a lot of uh, rebuilding of the Russian military um, over the past few years because it, it, it sort of particularly since the war in Georgia in 2008, which has showed that it was uh, it was very weak and very badly organised. So you know, Russia has got substantial military forces, but they're nothing like nothing like a match um, for. The, the military forces of the United States in terms of uh, size, in some terms of sort of technological capability, and so on. And I'm underpinning that is, is, is the huge 
disparity also between the the economies of the two countries, which have um, you know which has grown ever wider in in the, in the previous 25 years. So I think by some estimates, the the Russian economy is is one sixteenth the size of the American economy. So you know this is a yes. You know there is a there is a kind of a contest between the two sides, but it's a very very unequal contest. A final question, um, and back back to the title of the book, um, uh, "Who Lost Russia?" Is is Russia lost, and is it too late to get it back? I think an awful, an awful lot depends on uh, what happens within the United States. Um, I mean, we haven't we haven't spoken so far about about Donald Trump about this sort of extraordinary um, this sort of extraordinary affection or admiration I suppose for for Vladimir Putin that uh, President Trump expressed during the during the election campaign I mean even you know right, right back in in I think June 2015 um, Trump was was expressing admiration for Putin, he was sort of saying what a smart guy he was. How he, he thought that the two of them could could sit down and uh, and, and do business together. Um, extraordinary kind of bromance that seemed to sort of flourish between the two of them, even though they they, they, they hadn't met at that point. They still haven't met. Um, so I think there was a, there was an expectation that things were going to change with the arrival of Donald Trump because relations under Barack Obama, despite his Attempts at a at a reset when he came to power had had all come to nothing uh, by the end of 2016. By the by the end of of, of um, Obama's term, uh, relations were really caught in a you know with Russia in a dead end. I think there was the hope that that, that Trump would would change that. I think just by by sitting down and, and and talking to to Putin, that's become more difficult, obviously because of the the allegations of Russian interference in the election and all this kind of stuff, which I think makes it difficult for uh, for, for, for Trump to, to to develop a warm relationship with Putin, because I think any steps he makes towards him, people will immediately say, well, this is because you, were, you, you and your campaign were, were in his pocket. I think that'll be, that'll be clearer when the two men meet for the first time. I think the expectation is that that will be at the, at the G20 meeting in, in, in Germany in July. Um, but in, in, in terms of um, what can be done, I mean, something something must be done, ultimately, because I think we can't, it's very clear that we can't continue like this. Uh, there are a number of stumbling blocks. I mean, certainly within Europe, there is the question of, of Crimea. Russia illegally occupied Crimea. Russia is not going to give up Crimea, because for Putin, that will be a huge, say, that will be a huge loss of face. Uh, but by the same token, the West cannot formally accept um, the annexation as, 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 as acceptable because that's setting a setting a precedent. This was this was Russia unilaterally changing international borders. So a way has to be found round that. Um, maybe a way might be found, perhaps by organising some kind of a plebiscite there, when the people would probably, one suspects, vote to become part of Russia. Um, ditto, we've got to deal with the, the continuing military conflict in uh, the east of Ukraine, which kind of Russia keeps bubbling along uh, just in order to, to kind of to weaken and de to destabilize Ukraine. Um, so there are those there are those kind of problems. There is there is clearly Syria to sort out, although I think ultimately perhaps there a compromise is, 
is 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 possible perhaps based on um, Assad eventually leaving or some kind of plan that leads to him leaving sometime down the line. So you know th- there are there are problems, but I think there are ways around those problems. But that is only going to happen when the two sides sit down and and really start talking. The book is called Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War. Uh, the author is Peter Conradi. It's an excellent book. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It was great. Thank you.